Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also donate using the Patreon link in the description below. So I'm glad to be back and I've got a great show for everybody today. We're going to be splitting the show up into four different segments. The first two I want to talk about a couple companies that I've covered previously. The first one's going to be ALX Oncology which recently gave an update in their MDS program and we saw another decline in the stock so I want to talk about all of that. I then want to give an update on Longevron and my potential short play because things have changed in the last couple of weeks and I wanted to give an update on what I'm thinking there. The next segment I want to talk about is an update on all the CNS companies that I covered in like Q1, Q2 of this year and do a where are they now segment because a lot has changed and 2021 has actually been a pretty exciting year for the neurodegenerative disease space. So I want to catch everybody up on that and let everyone know what I'm thinking there. And then the last segment we're going to do is a Breaking Biotech 2021 Best Trades and Worst Trades, which somebody suggested on Twitter, and I think it's a good idea, and there's a lot to talk about there. So we're going to get into all of that, but I first want to say Merry Christmas to everybody. I hope you're enjoying the festive season. Down here in San Diego, it is pouring rain, so don't love that, but I do have a lot to be thankful for, so I'm very grateful to have this time to spend with friends and family. So. Hope you're all enjoying the time as well. And with that, let's get into the show. And the first company I want to talk about, like I mentioned, is ALX Oncology, ticker symbol ALXO. And they're trading now at a price of $23.26 a share, giving them a market cap of $940 million. And so the most recent decline has dropped them around $500 million in market cap from $33 a share. And this is just in early December 2021. And this decline in the stock comes on the heels of a more recent update they gave in their high-risk MDS program. We saw originally the abstract was presented and that precipitated the decline. And then when they showed the data, there was an even further decline. So we'll talk about that in just a second. But just to catch everyone up on where the company's at, their Q3 net loss was $25 million and their net current assets sit at $390 million. But... As of the 17th of December, they did a $150 million shelf offering. But as I read the press release, it's something that they can tap into from time to time, so it shouldn't be as dilutive as something like a secondary offering would be. This puts their enterprise value at $550 million or $400 million if the shelf were to be fully executed, but we would expect them to be pretty conservative in tapping into that. And for those who don't know, ALX Oncology is commercializing, or not quite yet, they're developing clinically an anti-CD47 antibody for all sorts of different cancers. And the unique thing about the ALX Oncology antibody, which is called Evorpicep, is that it doesn't promote phagocytosis because of how the antibody is constructed. So rather than promoting an active function of the host immunity, it will just block that don't eat me signal. And this compares to some other antibodies that we've talked about in the space, like Trillium's antibody or Megrolimab, which does promote phagocytosis. So this is what separates ALX Oncology. And the thought here is that this will improve safety because we've often seen a lot of thrombocytopenias or anemias with the molecules that do promote phagocytosis. So all of that set aside, we'll get into the data. ALX Oncology is focusing not only on hematologic malign malignancies, 
but they're looking at breast cancer and gastric cancer, of which they've seen some pretty nice data. So to talk about the recent update that they gave, here's what the press release reads. ALX Oncology announces initial data from Aspen 2, the ongoing phase 1-2 study of Avorpacept in combination with azacitidine, demonstrating safety and preliminary activity in patients with myelodysplastic syndrome. So here's what the data looks like. And the combination here is Avorpacept and azacitidine. The outline of what they're doing here is shown on the right. It's a dose escalation trial where they're going from 20 mg per kg all the way to 60 mg per kg in combination with a pretty standard azacitidine treatment. Ignore the dog whining if you hear that. And so they looked at three different treatment groups. Previously untreated high-risk myelodysplastic syndrome patients, previously untreated HRMDS patients with TP53 mutation, and then relapsed or refractory MDS patients. So for previously untreated HRMDS, the objective response rate was 50%, or 3 out of 6 patients. And among those, 2 out of 6 patients, or 33%, were complete responders, and then 1 out of 6 of them was a complete remission with incomplete hematologic recovery. So the blood cells that weren't blasts haven't quite recovered to the extent of a complete responder, but they were seeing blasts go below 5%. I believe that's what the definition of CRHI would be. Then we got two out of six patients that were stable disease and one out of six patients that were progressive disease. For previously untreated HRMDS with TP53 mutation, objective response rate was three out of five patients, and of that, two out of five were complete responders, one out of five was a CR high, one out of five stable disease, and one out of five was progressive disease. And then the last category here for relapse and refractory MDS, five out of nine were objective responders, or 56%, and all of those were CR high, with two out of nine being in stable disease and one out of nine being progressive disease. So I think on the outset, we want to make sure that we look at the follow-up time because as we've seen in some other data sets that have been released, a lot of these responses tend to improve with more time. So the thing that sticks out here is it's been 3.4 months as the median follow-up time on study. So a lot of the stable diseases that we see here have the potential to move into complete responders. Of course, this is just speculation, but I think we should keep in mind that comparing this to previous data sets, we want to see whether or not that follow-up time is similar. And I'd say here, the data is relatively immature at this point. But as we see on its face, we want to compare this to Magrolimab data, which was presented in 2020, because Magrolimab is further along than Avorpacept, and they've recruited a significantly higher proportion of patients for their study, so their data set is a lot more robust. So it stands to reason that comparing it to Magrolimab gives us a good sense on whether or not this data is impressive or not. And if we were to do that, here's the Phase 1b Magrolimab plus azacitidine data set that was presented in May of 2020. And if we see here in a similar patient population of previously untreated HRMDS patients, the objective response rate was 91%. So 30 out of 33 patients got a response. And of those, 42% were complete responders or 14 out of 33 patients. And here we can see, like I mentioned, the median follow-up time was 5.8 months to 9.4 months. So more time has passed, but 
Still, this is a pretty big improvement over the Avorpicept data, and I think that this on its face is what led to the big sell-off of ALX oncology in the market. Gilead also looked at previously untreated AML patients, and you should read the WHO's website on the distinction between HRMDS and AML. It's a little bit controversial. I would say in general, AML is has a higher percentage of blasts than MDS, but there's a lot of papers out there that say that that distinction isn't necessarily as useful as some other definitions. So in general, we would assume that AML patients are more severe in their disease. And this bears out in the data. So we see here that the objective response rate is only 64% with patients treated with megrolamab plus azacitidine. And of that, 14 out of 25 were complete responders or complete responders with incomplete hematologic recovery or 56%. And then Gilead also looked at patients that were diagnosed with AML that also had a TP53 mutation, and of those, 75% were complete responders. So pretty impressive data set. And we can see here if we compare the data sets between them, I mean, it's very obvious that Gilead's data, data is quite a bit better when it comes to efficacy. And I would just say that we can be hopeful that the Avorpicep data, as it matures, might improve. But because it's such a small patient population, I think it might take another study before we start to see these kinds of deep responses as they recruit more patients. Gilead did a follow-on data update with AML patients only, and this was presented in December of 2020. And for previously untreated AML patients that did not have a TP53 mutation, those treated with megrolamab plus azacitidine, the objective response rate was 50% or 7 out of 14 patients, with complete responders being 36% or 5 out of 14 patients. 1 out of 14 was a CRI or 7%. And then those that were previously untreated with AML with a TP53 mutation, objective response rate was 69% or 20 out of 29 Complete responders were 45% or 13 out of 29, and CRI patients was 14% or 4 out of 29. So we can see here, this does match what we just saw before, that in the more disease burden patient population of AML, you do see less efficacy there. So I think this is something to keep in mind. It's going to be a good benchmark for us when ALX Oncology does start to look at those more disease burden patients that have AML. So... That's on the efficacy side. We can see here that Macrolimab data does stand out as being more efficacious than Avorpicep. But we need to look at the safety because the one thing that ALX Oncology touted as being so much more superior was in the safety data. So this is the safety that they presented here. It's a little bit grainy. Apologies for that. So on the top are the treatment emergent adverse events and below are the Avorpicep related adverse events. And so it's important to distinguish between these two because azacitidine is also being treated with these patients and azacitidine is associated with a lot of the typical side effects that we see in these trials. So I listed these on the right here. Azacitidine is a monotherapy. The most common adverse events, greater than 30%, are anemia, nausea, thrombocytopenia, vomiting, pyrexia, leukopenia, etc. So the study managers are able to pull out what they think are Avorcep related versus what are just treatment emergent due to maybe the azacitidine or maybe just due to the burden of having MDS. So we see here in the Avorcep related AEs, 
the ones that come out are mostly in the high dose group, that 60 mg per kg. And if we look below that, there's really not much going on. There's one constipation, a nausea, a vomiting that are only grade one and two. So that's pretty positive, I would say. The grade three or four that came up were neutropenia, but again, these were only in the high dose group. And it remains to be seen whether or not ALX Oncology is going to move forward with that 60 mg per kg dose group. Now, overall, there were 13 patients that experienced a treatment emergent adverse event that was grade three or higher. One patient experienced a grade five sepsis that was unrelated to treatment, so I don't think we need to worry too much about that. And, you know, it really is these avorpicep related adverse events that we care about. So the company said that they're moving forward with a dose escalation trial to determine the recommended phase two dose. And I think this contributed to some of the bearishness with the company is that investors may have thought that this would have been enough for them to take a phase two dose and move ahead. But it seems like they're going to need to do another dose escalation trial. So I think this just adds time to the clinical development process and investors might not have been expecting that. So this is the Avorpicep safety data in combination with azacitidine. And if we compare this to megrolimab, which I'm showing here, we can see a, a much more bleak picture. And some of the stuff that comes out just on its face is that anemia shows up as a treatment-related adverse event up to 40%, and some of these are grade four adverse events. So pretty serious. Neutropenia, thrombocytopenia also come up as grade four adverse events with the megrolimab treatment, and these are treatment related. So specifically related to the megrolimab treatment. So I think here is where ALXO really does stand as a better treatment option. And I think in the patient population that they're looking at, you know, they're hoping to treat patients that are unresponsive to traditional therapy and those that are relatively fragile so they don't qualify for some of the stem cell transplantation treatments that might otherwise be offered if their bodies could handle it. So I think that ALX Oncology could present as a good option for doctors who are trying to treat their patients that might not tolerate a more intense therapeutic, which it seems like here the data does stand aside as being better in terms of safety. So overall, yeah, megrolimab is better on efficacy, but if patients can't tolerate this kind of treatment, I think that avorpicept is really going to look good when it comes down to it. What's next for ALX Oncology? I mentioned before that they did a shelf offering on December 17th. This was obviously some bearish news that they announced after hours on a Friday. So this has been contributing to that downside. But I'd say what's more unfortunate for them is that they haven't been very clear on the catalyst for 2022. They're very thin on catalysts, and I think that this might lead the stock to continue to trade at its lows until we get more clarity into the next part of the year. So I'm going to be looking towards their 2021 earnings report, which should be coming out around February for them to really lay out what we should expect in 2022. And I think hopefully that will lead to some more bullishness in the stock. But it has been a rough year for ALX Oncology. But I think if those of you have followed my Twitter, I did add to my position. And I think ALX is going to be a winner. It's just going to take some time for the sentiment to change. So I also wanted to give an update on what we can expect from Megrolimab because Megrolimab really is going to set the bar when it comes to efficacy for hematologic malignancy. Gilead actually pushed their updates from Q4 of 2021 to Q1 of 2022. 
And I read an, I think it was an Evaluate Pharma article where they talked about how Gilead might be rethinking their filing strategy because recently we saw that Takeda got a CRL when they were trying to get approval for MDS due to the complete responder rate only. They were trying to get accelerated approval and that didn't end up working out. So the article was speculating that Gilead's going to take a little bit more time to rethink their accelerated approval approach and push that data update. So we're now expecting a Q1 2022 data update in high-risk MDS. So we can look forward to that. And yeah, Gilead is moving forward with a lot of solid tumor studies as well, which is very exciting to see. We haven't gotten too much update on the CD47 space in solid tumors, so I'm looking forward to see how all of that shakes out. So that's ALX Oncology. And I wanna move on to Longevron, ticker symbol LGVN, and they're trading at a price of $13.70 a share, giving them a market cap of $278 million. And this is down about $100 million in market cap from last week, where they were trading at around 18 bucks per share. Their Q3 net loss was $5 million, and their net current assets sit at $23 million, with another $20 million as in a private placement that was done about a week ago. So this puts their enterprise value at around $235 million. And if you want more information on what the company's trying to do, check out my last video. I went into a lot more depth on how I thought about the company. But they're trying to develop a mesenchymal stem cell therapy for all sorts of diseases, a lot of them associated with aging. The, the big one is really Alzheimer's disease, but if you go on my previous video, I really outlined the case on why I don't think the company is worth more than really the cash they have on hand, or maybe even below that. So I really think the company should be trading at something like three to four dollars per share, given the data that they've presented so far. So last time I outlined that I was interested in doing a short play on Longevron. And last time when we spoke, the float for the company's stock was 2.72 million shares, and the short percent of float as of November 15th was only 7%. Now, since then, I've been following the company a little bit more in terms of these statistics. The float has increased to 4 million shares, and the short percent of float as of December 23rd was actually 30%. So there's been like a 500% increase in the number of shares short as a percent of float. And we need to pay attention to this if we're going to be doing a short play because the risk of a short squeeze can absolutely devastate your portfolio. And so what I'm showing at the bottom here is the fintel.io uh, short squeeze rank. And I've got two different dates here, December 17th and December 23rd, showing the change in what's happened with Longevron. Some of the things that I've noticed as being a risk to doing this kind of trade, the one is that the stock is listed reg show threshold. It's been marked at this because for 13 consecutive days, it's been marked as failure to deliver. And so I would encourage you to look at Investopedia to understand what some of these terms mean. And as I understand it, failure to delivers occurs when stock has been lent out more times than the number of shares that are in existence. And this happens due to the nature of the brokerage and clearinghouse system where it takes a couple days to actually settle stock. So brokers don't actually know how much stock they have to lend out. So you know they allow the market conditions to dictate that. When they need to settle trades and the stock doesn't actually exist, they are issued a failure to deliver. They issue a failure to deliver. 
And so the SEC has marked this stock as reg show threshold for that reason. Now, people see this and they think that, oh, a short squeeze is imminent, but we don't often know how long it's going to take for this kind of thing to resolve and you know how that resolution takes place. It does increase the chances of a short squeeze, but you know who knows how long it'll take. And if anybody followed the GameStop saga earlier in the year, you know that it's very difficult to predict these things. So this just adds to the risk of taking a short position. I'm going to keep this in mind as I decide to jump into it or not. The other thing is that you'll notice that the rank has gone down actually in time. So it was ranked six before by Fintel. It's now moved down to 11. And I think the big reason for this is that the days to cover has improved and the price momentum has actually declined quite a bit. So the price went up a bunch last week uh, as a month over month basis, and that has now declined. So we've seen some stability and actually a big decline in the price recently. Some things to note, though, is that the borrow fee has increased a little bit. So the borrow fee is pretty significant, 146%. Obviously, when this is annualized, it's not that much, but it is something to keep in mind that the borrow fee is quite high and the short interest as a percent of float is still quite high at around 30%. So I'm going to keep all of this in mind before I take a position. And this is something that is deterring me from jumping into this short position. But, you know, follow my Twitter if you want to catch me in taking a position or not. The handle is at Matthew Lapoire, but these things are top of mind for me and I do want to make sure that I don't get caught in a short squeeze. When it comes to fundamentals though, this is some of the news that has happened in the last couple weeks. So last time on my show, I presented this chart that outlined a couple of the catalysts that we were likely to expect. And I said that I wanted to wait until we saw this aging frailty data, this, which was gonna come in Q4, as well as this biomarker data that was coming from their aging frailty trial. Now what's changed since then is that they have totally omitted this biomarker data update, so they're no longer doing that for one reason or another. It makes you question whether or not there's anything interesting in the biomarker data for their aging frailty trial. And then they pushed all of these catalysts out. So the initiation of the phase two trials is not happening until Q1 of next year. And then the one readout that I was a little bit concerned about is this phase one, two trial top line data readout for aging frailty influenza vaccine phase one, two HERA trial. So this has now been pushed to Q1 slash Q2. So we might actually not see an update until June of 2022. And this gives me a little bit more confidence in taking a short position, even though we've seen that silly kind of press releases have come out and really boosted the stock like orphan drug designation. But I think one mover for the stock that is of concern would be this top line data if it was really positive. But I took a deeper dive into what we could expect for this aging frailty influenza vaccine trial, which is kind of a silly thing that I'd never really heard of before. And so what the company's trying to do here is they're giving Fluzone in combination with their mesenchymal stem cell treatment. So from the outset, I thought this was a COVID vaccine trial, but it's not. It's actually just the standard quadrivalent influenza vaccine, Fluzone, given in combination with an infusion of mesenchymal stem cells. And what they're hoping to see here is an improvement in antibody titers of the targets of the Fluzone. They're hoping that delivery with Lomacell B will improve those titers. And I scoured the research a little bit to see whether or not there was a good precedent to do a trial like this, and I haven't really seen much evidence. So I think the odds of success here are quite low, 
just because there hasn't been many studies done or much preclinical data. So I'm not sure why the company decided to move with this. It seems like a big shot in the dark to me. Now, in terms of what we can expect for efficacy or what success looks like, here's the phase three study for flu zone. We see the geographic mean titers for influenza A, uh, 231 or 501 for H1N1 or H3N1 respectively. And then for influenza B, the geographic mean titers are something like 73 or 61 for the two different viruses that they're inoculating for. When it comes to seroconversion rates for influenza A, it's around 65% and influenza B, it's around 30%. So there is some room for improvement here that Lomacell B could do, but I think the odds are pretty low that they're going to see success here. So this makes me feel more confident in being short into this readout, even though I know that there's a lot of risks associated with it. Another thing I wanted to bring up is this hypoplastic left heart syndrome completion date. And somebody invited me to be a moderator on the LGVN subreddit, and I noticed some people were posting about this, and I wanted to clarify what I think here. But for this trial, it shows that the estimated study completion date is December of this year. So we might be anticipating some kind of big readout before the end of the year. But I want everybody to note that this is in two phases, this study. Phase one was this 10 patient safety run-in, and then it's going to convert to a phase two where they're doing 20 patients, randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive Loma cell B or no cells during the stage two surgery. But if you remember what I presented in my last show, the phase one is actually complete. They looked at 10 patients and they presented the data already. I think it was, yeah, I've got it listed here. The press release was in September of 2021, where they showed that 100% of patients were transplant free from their stage two surgery. So this is done. And I think that this was the completion date associated with that. And you don't usually see this. You see companies usually present the data after the study completion date, but I think this is a typo and we're gonna see an update on the study date pretty soon. And so if we look at the phase two study though, it is ongoing and it's associated with that same NCT number. The company issued a press release on uh, October of this year saying that they just activated two new clinical sites. So this is very much uh, the beginnings of this trial. And they mentioned here in the corporate presentation that the first patient was treated on July 7th of 2021 and the primary endpoint isn't until 12 months after that. So they're not gonna start collecting data until July 7th of 2022. So I really think that this December 2021 estimated completion date is a typo and it's gonna be pushed to December 2022 pretty soon. So for this reason, I don't think this is an overhang that I need to be worried about. So that's Longevron. So I'm really thinking about putting on a short position soon. I totally missed the big downside move that happened in the last week or so, which is very unfortunate, but I do think that it's a good short play given that I really don't think the company should be more worth more than the cash they have on hand. With that, I wanna to move to CNS companies in 2021. And like I mentioned, it's been a pretty fun 2021 for these companies. We saw like fraud allegations and big upsets in different stocks. And this is what I presented in like Q1 of 2021. This is the landscape as it was and all the different things that we could look forward to. And so in the next slide, I'm gonna show the changes that had happened and I'm gonna give an update on each one of these pretty quickly. So this is what happened in the last 12 months or so. Cortexime, 
we saw negative data come out from their phase 2B3 trial. And after that, the company lost around 80% of their enterprise value. It's now trading at around $170 million. And what this company is looking to do, this is their big Alzheimer's disease readout. And what they're doing now, though, is they're going to focus on that subgroup that saw some positive effect from their treatment. And they're going to only focus on that after patients receive the saliva test for the bacteria that they think is part of the mechanism of efficacy. So the company is going to move forward with that. Cortexlime is also kind of a high risk stock in that it's also heavily shorted too. So I'm going to stay away from it from now. And I'm not sure if this subgroup is necessarily the, the way forward, but the company seems pretty optimistic. And I know that there is a lot of retail attention here. So that's Cortexime. Now, some of these other companies saw a lot of price activity and increase after the Cassava Sciences saga started happening. And I think Anavex was one of them. They had released a bit of data in regards to the Rett syndrome trials, but they didn't really present too much in regards to Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's, which is really what gives Anavex a lot of excitement in my opinion. But just due to the fact that Cassava and the CNS space saw a lot of excitement, they moved up around $410 million in enterprise value or 52%. So they're sitting at 1.3 billion. And what we can expect for them is some more data coming actually before the end of 2021, phase two, three in adult Rett syndrome, which I think has a lot of promise. But the big excitement for Anavex is in H2 of 2022, where they're gonna share their pivotal Alzheimer's disease trial data. So that's gonna be one to watch. I think I'm gonna take a long position there because I think that the company does have a lot of potential there and I'm looking forward to seeing that data readout. Elector, we saw that they hit a big deal with GSK and this increased the stock big time and since then it's actually sold off tremendously. So I like Elector, I think they're gonna have a lot of potential but the issue here is that we don't really have a clear timeline on when their big Alzheimer's disease readout's gonna be. So they're sitting now at an enterprise value of 1.4 billion we should be seeing an update in AL003, as well as some biomarker data for AL001. But right now, I don't think they're a good investment. I think that we need to see them mature a little bit more before we take a position. But the GSK deal really does put confidence behind them. So I think Anavex and Elector, I might look at them more closely in 2022 for an investment. Moving on though, Cyclerion, this company's been a disaster. The management team has continued to push out readouts and this has just led to a big annihilation of the stock price. They're down 85% in enterprise value from Q1 of this year, sitting at only $16 million enterprise value. And we're still waiting for this MELAS data. And you know, hopefully we're gonna see it in early 2022, but I'm starting to lose patience and lose confidence in this company, even though I'm down so much on the position. I do think that the downside is relatively priced in now, and hopefully with some positive news, we can start to turn the story around. As for Cassava, I'm not gonna spend too much time on them because I've covered them so much this year, but after all is said and done, they're up around $260 million in enterprise value, or 16%. And what we can expect to see from Cassava is some resolution when it comes to the fraud allegations, either in the positive or the negative side. We did see some positive news last week with uh, fraud clearance from one of the clinical journals. I think that the SEC investigation as well as the NIH investigation are more impactful though. So definitely 
be careful with that. They should be providing more updates for their open label extension study, but I think this is gonna have less impact because we've seen so many updates on this already. But the one thing that I thought was kind of cool that Cassava was doing is that they've initiated this phase three cognition maintenance study. And so what they're doing here is they're following patients that have discontinued on simufalam, and they're using them as kind of a control group to show that their open label extension study actually does have clinical relevance. So they're hoping to use that discontinued group as a control, compare it to the treatment and see whether or not the discontinued group progresses worse than simufalam treated. So we'll see how that plays out. They are showing a pretty decent recruitment so far. So I'm gonna be watching that because I think it's gonna be pretty cool to see. Athira is another company that I briefly mentioned earlier in the year. And pretty quickly after I mentioned them, the fraud allegations on the CEO came out and the stock has been annihilated since then, down 40% in enterprise value since I covered them. And they're still moving forward with their Alzheimer's disease trial, but I think that the risk here is pretty substantial. The odds of seeing positive data are just very, very low. And I know this is the typical story with Alzheimer's disease, but for Athira, I think that the odds are even lower than if it was a standard Alzheimer's disease readout because the mechanistic studies that were done earlier, the confidence behind them is really put in jeopardy now. Anovis was another company that I looked at and in this year, they showed some positive phase one, two data for both Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. This is actually one of the trades that I'm gonna talk about in a second where it was my big winner of the year. But since then, the company's traded quite a bit lower and overall, they're sitting now down 30% from earlier in the year. And this is really due to confusing messages that we've seen from management. I really think the company needs to just hire a good investor relations person who can very much coordinate how the company would present data and how the company would outline uh, next steps. And I think that for this reason, I think people are very concerned about management's ability to move forward in the clinical process for something like this. So we don't even really know what the next catalysts are for this company. And I think that if they were to clarify that, we could see a big increase in the price, but I'm not sure that the management team is willing to do that. So it's unfortunate because they did see some evidence of some data earlier in the year, but for me, I'm not super trusting of management team and you know, with a small study, it's uh, unclear whether or not this effect that they've seen would translate in a bigger study. Last company I'm gonna just briefly touch on, Longevron. They were a big winner this year, up around 130% from Q1, and this is due to the positive data that we saw. And the next steps, really the next big readout is gonna be the influenza vaccine trial that I mentioned before. So pretty exciting year. I think 2022 is gonna be pretty exciting as well for a lot of these companies because of the big Alzheimer's disease readouts that we can expect. So with that, I wanna talk about some winner trades that I made and some loser trades that I made. And overall for my portfolio, I'm down 17% year to date. This is basically in line with the XBI. So you know, ideally I'd like to be beating the XBI, but being in line with it doesn't make me feel so bad. And so to get to the top trades that I made, the one that I mentioned was Anovis. On their first data readout, we really saw a huge increase in the stock. I took a position around 25 and sold it around 50 for 100% gain. The black pill with this here is that I could have sold at around $100 a share to do something like 400% return. So I sold a little too quick here, but 
you know, this is a bit of a subjective thing when you are playing these readouts. The next top trade I made was for the Trillium buyout, and I took a position at around five bucks in 2020 and sold it around 18 or 17.5 in mid-2021 when the buyout was announced, so 300% gain, I'm happy about that. Here also though, I could have sold at this price in late 2020 before that big sell-off occurred, but you know, ended up working out. I am happy to have sold and made the gains that I did. Clearside was another company that I was able to make a nice profit on. I, it's kind of bittersweet though because since then I took a position at $5 and it's now sitting at around $3 so this one isn't really worth mentioning. 40 molecular therapies though I did take from low 20s to low 30s so a nice 33% gain there. And really overall with this game, I should have said this from the outset, but you know, you're gonna have winners and you're gonna have losers, but your position sizing is really what matters and you want your position sizing to just be higher in your winners compared to your losers. And this is something that I didn't really stick to properly enough in 2021, hence why I'm sitting at negative 17 year to date. So for my loser trades, the big loser was Biogen. I was totally wrong on how negative I thought that the market was pricing Biogen I really thought that the market was pricing in a lot of this downside on all the complications that would come with this Aduhelm launch. And because of that, I'm down 37.5% on the position, and it was a pretty decent position in my portfolio. So I do think Biogen is going to have its day, but I was way too early in taking a position here. And you know, with the draft NCD decision coming in January, I think we could see a lot of upside coming from the company. So I'm still holding for that reason. The next two trades I made, they were pretty small portions of my portfolio, so while they were big losses on paper, because the number of shares that I had wasn't so big, it wasn't a big deal, but Atrika did not see any success in their early readout. YMTX did not see any early success with their Parkinson's disease readout, so I was quick to sell those, and I think that in general, these high-risk, high-reward trades, cut them as soon as you see the data release because you only see more downside, and I think Atrika is down another 50% from when I sold, and the same is true for YMTX. So cutting your losers early is a good thing. The last trade I've made, and this is something that you know I could have taken that advice for, was Cyclerion. So I'm down 65% on this stock, and it was a pretty big position too because I doubled down before Q4 when I thought the MeLast data was going to be released, but then quickly after that they pushed out the readout again. So the advice I should give myself here was just to cut my losers quickly. And I could have cut this in early 2020 and not had to deal with all of this disaster and I'd be holding a lot more money if I had done that. So there's a lesson there and I took my advice sometimes and sometimes I don't take that advice. And oftentimes it is subjective so it makes it relatively difficult to make a hard and fast rule. But you do need to trust your gut with some of this stuff. So that's the episode. And I'm going to quickly do a portfolio recap here. And so if you've been following my Twitter, I added to KPTI. I think that the management change-ups and the recent uptick in sales, as well as the upcoming Sienna readout, are going to be pretty bullish for the stock. So double down on them. I am you know, cautiously optimistic because KPTI has suffered tremendously since I first covered them. I also added to ALXO a couple times and you know, for the reasons that I outlined earlier in the video. And then I've also added to my Curious position, which I also mentioned on Twitter. And so we're still waiting for some readouts that are, should be coming from Magical, Checkpoint, 
Who else? Um, Replimune is a pretty big Q1. PDSB is a big Q1. Curious as well is a big Q1. Biogen as well. Uh, Clearside already gave their update and the stock didn't move too much, but I love the super crotal space story. So I'm gonna continue to hold Clearside and Regenix Bio. And then what else do we have here? Oh, BioXL. I think I'm gonna add to my BioXL position because we saw recently, I think it's been a couple companies now that if a company gets an extension by the FDA, the odds of approval at that extension for PDUFA are in insanely high. So what I'm thinking of doing is tripling down on this position that I made to replace the position that I sold off and hope to sell on a pop in the stock after PDUFA approval. And what else? I think that's pretty much it for the updates there. And like I mentioned, I'm at negative 17% year to date. So I'm gonna update this. We're gonna get a clean slate for 2022 and hope to outdo our performance here because it's not been a great year. But in terms of the big positions that I'm holding, Biggest ones are Madrigal, Biogen, Alex Oncology, and Regenix Bio. And then everything after that, I think Curious is pretty big and Checkpoint. But we should be seeing readouts from them pretty soon, and I might deleverage after that. So that's the episode that I have for you today. Let me know what you think in the comments. Am I off on Alex Oncology or Longevron? If there's anything I've missed, happy to discuss it in the comments, or you can tweet at me at Matthew Lepar. So thank you so much, everybody, for watching. Appreciate all the support. Click that like or subscribe button and share the show with a friend if you think they'd appreciate this content. So with that, I'm going to wrap it up. But thanks again, everybody, and we'll see you next time.